Morning everybody. So we're, we're looking at managing brands and particularly controlling brands online in the ever-changing environment that's, that's online. My colleagues Alison and Susie are going to give us some legal content later on. Alison and Ray will be focusing on some key developments in trademark law and how those interact on a practical level with brand control. Susie will be picking up on some other recent key legal developments, particularly around ISP liability for content, a digital copyright management, and also uh, some of the contractual uncertainties that exist in social media contexts. But I think most fortunately for us, we're delighted to have Matt Morrison with us. Matt is the head of social media at uh, Starcom Media Vest Group. I'm always nervous when I say how long people have been doing things, whether that's a positive for them or a negative in suggesting how old they are. It's probably fair to say that Matt has been advising brands in the online space uh, as long as brands have been active in the online space. And particularly recently, that focus has moved on to social media, which make Matt, makes Matt an ideal person to tell us what brands are doing in the social media space, why they're doing it, and uh, where they're going to with it. So without further ado, I'll pass you on to Matt. And um, thanks. Any of you have iPhones, just hands, please. Twitter, you're my people. This is very nice. This is going to be a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Um, good. Excellent. Um, this may even work. So this is the thing about what happens to your brand when um, your audience has an audience. And here's a quick, very quick um, sort of anecdote to express, to, to show you what I mean. I woke up one morning and I, every morning I kind of read my Twitter feed, I read my Facebook feed, I read my blogs. And, that's what I do at breakfast. I don't, I don't have a newspaper. And I picked up a story that a friend of mine, but anyway, a friend of mine had on his new blog, and uh, it was a, this is the title, it was London Twitter Festival uh, ends in chaos as crowd clashes with Facebook enthusiasts. And uh, it was a funny line and um, a funny article, and, and I tweeted it. And then I got picked up by, an, uh, actually, a funny lawyer, and then got picked up by Bashir, Anthony, and now got picked up by Ivan. Within uh, about sort of three hours, this guy had 2,000 uh, visits to his site, which had come from my one thing. And, and that, that's beyond all the other ones he had. Those ones I could track. And this is what happened to his traffic. Um, he wasn't doing very well. It was a new blog. He wasn't doing very well. Um, and then suddenly, and, and now he's famous. Not quite famous. He can't. He, 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 we wouldn't actually buy media on his blog, but, um, but, it's, but it's a start. Um, you can't quite see this, but um, I was able, because I am like this, to map who was passing this stuff around. And you could actually start seeing yeah, how this story is spreading through social media, which is something we, we couldn't see before. Um, that's a, a, a different picture of the same thing. Uh, that's a picture of my Facebook, it's called an ego net, so you can't believe what An ego net is my personal social network and how they connect to each other. Um, very clumpy up there, because that's up there is like the social media crowd. That's people I was at university with, people I was at school. But that's that's a picture. That's my pic. That's a tiny part of the picture um, of my Facebook ego net today. That's my LinkedIn ego net. And and what what I'm sort of saying is that every single person in that ego net also has their own ego net. And each of those people has as many friends, has has as many connections. And and each of you have as many friends and as many connections. Um, even if you don't have a Facebook page. How many of you don't have a Facebook page? Anyway, so advertisers, not unreasonably, want to co-opt this. This is one of the things we want to do with social media, but let's just focus on this bit for a moment. And I get asked this, this question. Um, I, it's a question that I never was asked until, I think, this year, and now I've been asked in almost these exact words, this question about 10 times. Um, how do we socialize our content? I don't even know 
what people mean by, by that. <laughs> but I'm guessing what they mean is angry get stuff and get people to pass it around and not have to pay any media money for it, which is bad for me in a way because we get paid uh, for spending our time to media money. Nonetheless, this is the question that I, I, I'm, I'm <coughs> focusing on. Quick step back. About six and a half years ago, I was working for Sony. They were launching a new Bravia television. Does everyone remember the nice ad for Bouncing Balls? Good. The, they were off in San Francisco, uh, nice sunny day, dropping a whole load of bouncing balls down the street. And what, what they hadn't taken into account, because they, they knew there was like, good weather, they knew there were hills, what they'd missed was San Francisco is, just by nature, the most technically advanced city in America right now, and has been for a while. And it's also full of people who are really quite good photographers, uh, because it's a little bit arty and a little bit, and quite a lot of tech. And as they bounced these balls down the hill, they went past the windows of about 100 amateur photographers, all of whom had one of these great things, a Flickr account, which Flickr was quite new back then. Uh, uh, it's kind of over now, almost, but it, but it was very exciting back then. And one of them, sitting out, was filming a commercial outside my house, and, and, and this picture went everywhere. Got picked up, retailed, picked up, retailed. And Sony called us and said, and you know, can we please get these taken down? And it was kind of like, a, there, there, there are some you know, issues of, you know, you explain why that's not as easy, but I mean, back then, people weren't as wise as they are now. Can we take them down? We may want to think about it. And the, the big thing in an ad agency's head was, we've filmed these balls going down the hill, and we want, we're going to show it on television, and we don't want to spoil the surprise. You know, it's going to be a big launch weekend, and we don't want people to know. Anyway, we persuaded them that, because we actually, I, I think partly because we were unable to take them down, we persuaded them that actually we should, you know, sod that, let's, let's see if we can spread it even further. And yeah. another photograph of it. And we did, we spent, we, we managed to persuade them to, instead of paying us to take them down, we got them to us to pay them to spread it, which is, I think, a, uh, a, an example of an ad agency uh, at its very best. <laughs> you know, yes, we'll take your money for doing something you really didn't want us to do. But the, the upside of this, you know, or, or from our terms, is that we had, you know, from two and a quarter million downloads to YouTube, just to give you a sense, launched that year. Uh, we didn't consider YouTube, because YouTube wasn't really on our radar. We had people back then downloading the video. I mean, you wouldn't even dream of that. But, and we got, you know, two and a quarter million downloads, um, which works out um, for the maths, you please don't sort of correct me on this, but it works out about five, six hundred thousand, which is about four times cheaper than the cheapest paid media that we can find at the moment. So it was a, it was an amazing deal. I would struggle to do it again as well today. And we've got just because of the nature of things. If you if you Google the word advert at the time, um, you know we, we we came up top. As if although. We'd rather have had television. Um, and about two years later, um, Tango loved the ad so much that they did exactly the same thing in Swansea with a bunch of, um, just like, they got a of fruit. And it was just a total spoof. It was a knowing, witty spoof of the thing. And spoofs are quite a big thing. Um, so it's probably a gruesome one. But um, if, you, if your ad is good enough, people will create a parody ad. It just happens. Notably down here, in fact, this one here, that's the sun. Um, doing a spoof of the um, old, uh, the old Spice ad, Cadbury Gwyllard, another great ad, um, got spoofed uh, a lot, and really badly. This one here couldn't actually be worse. Uh, I mean, you, you, should, uh, you should go see just 
you'll see it. Just Google Cadbury Gorilla, it'll come up, and then bam, there's, there's Cadbury Gorilla ads loop. And it's got, you can see, 700,000 views because there's kind of a deal. People will spoof your ad or parody your ad because they know that they will get traffic off it. They'll get the views. It's great. It's a nice, easy way of doing things. That one there, all they did was they changed the soundtrack from Phil Collins to Smells Like. I mean, kind of, you know, in IP terms, I dread to think what you'd say about it. Anyway, this, in fact, this whole idea of spoofing is so big that we have a, we, we have a, a tool called Soundwave. It explicitly looks at the idea of at what point is our ad spoofed? And if our ad is not spoofed, we don't do this, but um, other agencies might, there is a tendency to create spoofs just to get the ball rolling. I, I have no idea whether people actually tell their clients about this or not, but um, you heard it here first. So we do this thing. We put our brand communications increasingly in the hands of, of our audience. Um, and this is an experiment going on Google, do an image, Google image search on priceless. Uh, and you get a sense of, well, it's nice that MasterCard's campaign is being so widely spread, uh, but, but, but would you choose to be attached to these images? This is an example from years ago. Um, it's still a great example. There's a, um, Polo had a, you know, in the old days, their strap line was small but tough. And young creative teams trying to get a name for themselves in advertising, trying to get a job, their first job, quite often make fake film, you know, make sort of spoof, not spoof films, but they make their sort of example films, their example ads, and they show them part of their portfolio. And this ad, somewhat tasteless, had a, had a, had a, a suicide bomber blow himself up inside Polo, but because the Polo was so small and tough, it contained the explosion. And somehow it escaped on the internet, and, and, and viral, uh, uh, to the point that um, VW were actually forced to create a legal action just to distance themselves from this ad. Because more people were seeing this than we're seeing their TV work. And if you Google small tough today, it's still at the top. <laughs> so uh, Volkswagen was forced to change their their, um, their strap line to tough, beautiful polo, which isn't nearly as good. But, but you know, you, sometimes you just have to. This is a kind of a, you know, what's the brand for? And it's good time to take a very, I'm not going to go through this because that would just drive me crazy. Uh, it comes down to two things. Uh, we reasonably invest in brands because it will eventually reduce your marketing costs. Uh, you spend a lot of money with us to do that. Um, but it does reduce, you, you get increased loyalty, you get increased preference, uh, increased awareness. Those sorts of things start happening for you. And the other thing is it allows you to charge much more. So Neurofen, I'm assuming that all of you have at some point your last bought Neurofen, is five times as expensive as Tesco's own brand, Ibuprofen. And yet, yeah, it's exactly the same product. It, I mean, it's, it's got a brand on it. That brand is a, is a, gives you a sense of what that IP is worth. And then we have these logos. Because a logo is the, the physical embodiment. I, ad agencies don't really do logos. We, uh, if you talk to a creative director, their creative director's ambition is to, is, is to shrink the logo as much as possible to make his film look bigger. And the a, a client's ambition is to make the logo as big as possible to stop the film. Uh, it's a, there's this endless battle. But it is one of the physical things, and as a result of which, you know, it's, it's, it's very valuable. So this is very much an edge case. Um, does everybody know Hello Kitty? Hello Kitty is an extraordinary thing. Uh, you can see the numbers behind it, but they don't make it. Sanrio doesn't make anything. They just license the, it to other people. So you can see them license. There's a, those are Hello Kitty sausages down there. And I'm hoping my daughter does not grow up to demand how to get such because it just looks like this can be horrible. Um, there are some really weird 
products that have the Hello Kitty brand on them. Um, some of you may be aware of that already. Uh, but they make half a billion a year from just effectively. And as a result of which, it is you know, the logo. If you're being attacked online, then the logo is generally what gets attacked. Uh, because if you spend all this money building up an association between your company and the logo, and then when somebody wants to go after you, they'll go after your logo. Um, this is a case from last year. Um, yeah, maybe vaguely aware of this. It would be lovely to hear that most of you aren't. There, the reason is because we, 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 I live in this sort of social media bubble where everybody knows this story, and I was thinking, uh, probably most normal people don't. So uh, Greenpeace, who are brilliant at the sort of mediagenic takedown, um, they uh, they made a video where a guy, it's just an ordinary KitKat ad, now, at the bit where he breaks into the KitKat, actually it's got an orangutan's finger in it because Greenpeace is trying to promote the idea that Nestle is buying their palm oil from a company which destroys uh, rainforests. Um, it was very dramatic. KitKat took one look at this and said, well, hang on, that's clear. I mean, you know, clearly our, our logo should not be in that. Uh, and and it, it was quite dramatic. So they do a takedown, uh, which is what Greenpeace was amazingly big being as smart as they are, it's what they were waiting for. Because it took it from being an, a, a little video on YouTube to Nestle and Google are ganging up against us, which gets Nestle, Google, and Greenpeace into the same headline, mm -hmm. which makes it just a story. Yes, brilliant. I mean, that's just the fact that nobody had seen this ad, this ad until they did this. It just, oh. Which, uh, it's, you know, power to Nestle's social listening, frankly, for spotting in the first place, but, um, but, but dear God, Nestle tries to harm palm oil truth. So as a result of which, everyone on the internet, uh, it seemed to me, changed their, um, their avatars on Facebook, on Twitter, or whatever, to this logo, the killer logo, uh, and, they, <laughs> and, and then they went on, on, on Facebook and started complaining. Greek is quite good at organizing these things. Uh, at which point, Nestle thinks it's got this young, I imagine slightly spotty kid, um, who, who's managing the, uh, with possibly slightly breaking voice, managing the, um, the, the, the Nestle page, because that's what we do. We give, you know, we, we give our, our, our customer comms to our interns. And it says, to repeat, we welcome your comments, but please don't post using an altered version of our logos as your profile pic, because they will be deleted. Which, which just drove everyone wild, and, and it was, uh, yeah, it, it was terrible. I mean, it was just this terrible, terrible day for them, and, and eventually, you know, this poor kid has to come out and apologise. And it, and it just, it just, oh, it was, it was all. There was like blood in the water. But, and and I just want to draw this to a close fairly quickly. And we, 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 we invest a lot of our clients' money in social media. Uh, I, Saying to uh, that, that actually, it, I, I thought it was a lot of money. Um, and then uh, I was at a presentation at HSBC the other day, and oh, it's not quite as much money as, as they get to play with. <laughs> but yeah, we spend millions with Facebook every year. We will spend many, many more millions with the next year. We spend a few million with uh, Twitter. Um, this is a big area for us. This is, and we would only see for us. It's going to be like search, it, it's, it's huge. And we had these people come in to show us technology. We do it all the time. You know, what are we going to do? And they've got this thing which looks for logos. 
uh, your logo and looks for any instance of logo abuse, and looks for near miss logo abuse, and looks for people doing it. So you can pick up stuff which is almost, almost your logo, but not quite. So you can pick up, for example, that really charming um, example there. They've got a different font, they've got a different this. And then they've got this one over here, which uh, that, says, that, that says censored, and it's um, yeah, Starbucks as Medusa. So you, you, you can pick up these things, because people are out there at the moment trying to uh, yeah, co-opt your IP. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons why they do this. Obviously, we cover the protesters and the activists. That's, that's quite normal. It'll never go away. It's one of those things. There is this thing where you imply, you know, you can just by putting the brand on there, you can imply a relationship that doesn't actually exist. It's very easy. Um, if you are looking to buy cheap Microsoft software online, you'll find a lot of that, which also leads into counterfeit sales um, and passing off your product as, again, a lot of the stuff, particularly if you're going to keep an eye on eBay, for example, watching your stuff being uh, traded and sold. Fishing. So, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, all of us have been at the target of quite sophisticated, and they're getting much better. The, the emails are smarter, every so often it is in fact my bank, or it is in fact PayPal, or it is in fact, yeah, so you get this thing where, and then you land on that page, and if you're, if you're um, naive, you will just type in your, your username and password, and then find out what's going wrong, whatever, but you don't actually do that naive. I mean, uh, I mean, we're all getting close to forward from it a couple of times a year. It's for hijacking, and just the nicest, easiest one, you know, partners of yours who are using out-of-date logos. I mean, we, yeah, so if you are a car brand and you have multiple dealerships, how the hell are you going to make sure that all of their websites are current? Yeah, you've just done a nice big brand change. How do you do this? So these are these are just the sort of some of the ways that your brand, your logo, is going to be misused. And, and and the question is, you know, what the hell do you do about it? Uh, and I have no idea. Which is thanks very much, Matt. So as Matt has said. Um, the fact that brand owners can now socialise their content, whatever that means, um, is presenting really great new opportunities for brand owners to interact with their consumers. And it's a really cheap and effective form of advertising, and something that's very exciting and clearly growing. Um, as Matt also pointed out, the inevitable consequence of this is that you do lose a certain amount of practical control over your branding. Whilst you might be happy for your consuming public to lovingly parody your branding, you might be less happy if third-party activists like Greenpeace get hold of it, um, and also competitors start using it in a way that takes advantage of your branding. So our job as lawyers is to help you reassert control over your brand in circumstances where you want to prevent this adaptive use of it. There are several different tools that law presents to do this. One is copyright, and one is passing off unfair competition law, but I'm going to specifically focus on trademark law because that enables you to protect your word and logos provided they're registered as trademarks. Now rather than give you a recount of how the law, how we've got to where we are today with trademark law, what I'm going to do is show you how we've got there and specifically focus on two problems that have presented themselves to the courts and that the courts have had to deal with. The first problem is the fact that traditionally when trademark law was conceived, we thought, we all thought, that trademarks acted as indications of the origin of the branded goods that they were affixed to. So they told you who was the manufacturer of those goods. And when I first told Matt this, he said, that's such a 19th century way of viewing, <laughs> mar viewing marks and brands. We've completely moved on from this. But there was this real basis in trademark law for just preventing uses that confused consumers as to where goods came from, the origin of them. 
we, I think we can all appreciate as consumers now that brands have really moved on and trademarks themselves have now acquired a real brand value, brand equity. And I've stuck the Nike logo up there as an example of a brand that we might want to buy just independently of the actual products that it's affixed to. So one of the points I'm going to look at is how the law has responded to the changing way that consumers now perceive marks and the fact they have a brand value. And I've stuck up a picture there of some perfume advertising because perfume manufacturers have been really good at pushing the agenda on this and getting the courts to move away from just protecting marks as indicators of origin. The second development that I'm going to look at is the fact that with this new technology and the fact that social media platforms and various other forms of online advertising, that it enables people to use your trademarks in ways that were never perceived at the time the Trademarks Act was drafted. And, and also, it enables them to use them in ways that definitely doesn't or probably won't damage the origin function. Specifically, I've listed down there some examples of ways that people can use uh, your brand online. And specifically, I'm going to focus on a couple of cases that relate to use of trademarks as keywords. But first things first, going back to basics, I've set out there the trademark legislation. This is what the court interprets. And so we need to have a look at this before we see how the court has gone on to view those issues. For those who are perhaps less familiar with trademark law, you register a trademark in relation to certain types of goods and services. And this means that when it comes to the infringement provisions, you have to perform a comparison of what goods and services you've registered for and what the second user is using a similar or identical mark in relation to. So I set out there the three provisions in the UK Trademarks Act and the provisions that they derive from in the European Trademark Directive, which applies in all EU member states. There are essentially three types of infringing scenarios that you can clamp down on as a trademark owner. So if an identical mark is being used in relation to identical goods, um, you effectively are offered absolute protection. That's what the preamble to the European Directive says. If, however, there's only a similar mark being used or it's only being used in relation to similar goods, then you need to overcome an extra hurdle which is proving that consumers are going to be confused. The preamble to the legislation says that those first two statutes are really there in particular to guarantee the mark as a guarantee of origin. So they are there to protect the origin function. That's what the preamble to the legislation says. Obviously, that's subject to how the courts have looked at it. Now, Section 10.3 is really a different animal, also known as Article 5.2, the Trademarks Directive. It was um, implemented to try and give extra protection to marks that had acquired a reputation and therefore were possibly being harmed in situations where people weren't confused as to where the goods originated from. And specifically, it prevents against three types of infringing use, which I've put out there, detriment to distinctive character, detriment to repute, and unfair advantage. I'm going to look at these in a bit more detail because these start to look like the legislators are recognising and trying to protect the brand value, the reputation of a trademark, rather than just its origin function. So just to explain these in a little more detail, detriment to distinctive character can perhaps best be described as the blurring of a brand. And a classic example of this is Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce is well known for the fact, well, it's well known for cars. That's instantly what comes to mind when you think of it. Um, however, if you started using Rolls-Royce in relation to lots of different goods and services, 
then, for example, Rolls-Royce newsagents, Rolls-Royce candy shops, Rolls-Royce clothes. After a while, consumers won't associate it immediately with cars. And so that's intended to stop that kind of blurring, that kind of dissolution of the hold that it has in the public's mind. Detriment to repute is perhaps better described as tarnishment. Though it's aiming to stop circumstances where a mark is being used in a situation such as with the Kit Kat killer example, where it's clearly going to build up a negative association in the public's mind and damage its reputation, its brand value. In order to prove those two, uh, you don't have to go so far as to show that consumers are confused as to origin, but you do have to prove that they make some sort of link between the mark and that it leads to a serious likelihood of damage. Unfair advantage is quite different to that, and the courts have said in the case of L'Oreal and Bleu, which I'm going on to talk about in later, that it's more about the advantage that the competing user takes from the mark and less about the fact that it might be detrimental to the trademark itself. They've said that they're trying to prevent a competing user riding on the coattails to benefit from a mark's power of attraction, its reputation, its prestige. Um, and an example of this, again using the Rolls-Royce um, mark, is if, for example, a whisky manufacturer started using Rolls-Royce. So here, the whisky manufacturer might not be specifically damaging Rolls-Royce brand, because whisky is quite a luxurious drink, I suppose. But it would certainly be getting an advantage and sort of winking back to the fact that Rolls-Royce traditionally has been used for luxury cars and would be gaining an advantage from that. So it looks like the legislation has some real good provisions in there to protect brand equity, brand image, reputation. But it's all a matter of how the courts have interpreted it. Um, as I said earlier, perfume manufacturers have been particularly good at pushing the envelope and getting the courts to move away from the traditional grounding in protecting marks as indicators of origin. This is a case in which Dior, who manufacture perfumes, um, objected to a particular use of their brands in advertising. Now, Dior is very conscious of its brand aura and it wants to create a luxury image in its advertising. And it controls its advertising to such an extent that it has a selective distribution network and only allows certain retailers to sell its perfumes and controls the type of advertising that they produce to ensure that this aura of luxury is maintained around their brand. Now, Avora is a cheap chain of chemists in the Netherlands, and they obtained a parallel importation. They obtained some batches of um, Dior's perfume, put it in their cheap, relatively cheap advertising pamphlets, and Dior objected to this. It wasn't in keeping with their luxury image. It was endangering their brand aura. And they said it was endangering their advertising function. The Advocate General, Jacobs, um, gave a non-binding opinion to the Court of Justice. But he said, OK, the Court of Justice is traditionally protected on the basis of the origin function. They've never actually said that trademark rights only extend to that. He mentioned these other functions that existed, the communication, investment, advertising functions, and suggested that perhaps you could stop um, uses that infringed and endangered those. The Court of Justice didn't really choose to follow him on this point. They said, OK, advertising sometimes can damage the brand equity that exists in a mark, but in this case, it doesn't. And he, they didn't specifically mention those functions that Advocate General Jacobs had mentioned. Uh, the last case also was not actually decided under Article 5 um, of the Trademarks Directive, which was those infringement provisions we looked at earlier. 
So I'm mentioning this case because this was the first time the Court of Justice did mention that marks might have more functions than just the origin function, and it was decided under Article 5. In this case, um, Mr. Reed was a counterfeit seller. He sold goods bearing Arsenal logos outside several stalls, which he set up outside Arsenal Football Club. And his claim was that, look, the origin function isn't compromised in any way. Consumers aren't confused. Look, I've even got a disclaimer sign in front of my stand saying this is unofficial merchandise. The Court of Justice, in a positive mood, did, as I say, recognise the fact that there were multiple functions, but they didn't name what they were. And they said that the essential function of a trademark was still the origin function. So there was limited movement, and reasons believe they were starting to appreciate that we were moving away from origin uh, function protection, but we still had a bit of a way to go. Also, the context in which they mentioned that there were multiple functions was actually to try and curtail the absolute protection that existed under Article 51A. That was the first provision that we looked at in the legislation slide, because they were saying you can't stop any use under that provision. You can only stop uses that are liable to affect one of the functions of a mark. So in fact they were using it as a way to limit protection. And what they specifically wanted to prevent was trademark owners stopping a purely descriptive use of a trademark. So to summarise the situation after Arsenal, they're effectively saying they've mentioned one function, which is the essential function, the origin function. And really if you think about it, it's very difficult to see how a use can jeopardise the essential origin function without consumers being confused. So if we require that, to operate under Section 10.1, and possibly under the other provisions of Section 10 as well, kind of creates a real limitation over those exciting trademark provisions, which are, move, are possibly moving towards protecting brand reputation, brand. And however, another perfume case came along in 2009. In this case, L'Oreal were objecting to the fact that the defendants were making smell-alike perfumes, and the way they were drawing this attention to the attention of the public was that they were placing the name of the L'Oreal trademark in comparison list next to the names of their own derived perfumes. So, for example, they put in a comparison list Tresor, which was the L'Oreal perfume, and the next to it Treasure, which was their slightly cheaper imitation. This case, uh, this case is interesting because it's another example of consumers not being confused as to where the goods come from. It's clearly stated that these are separate products. People know where they originate from. The reasoning in this case backed up Arsenal um, saying that there were multiple functions that constrained the absolute protection under Article 51A. But they did actually go on to name the additional functions that were first mentioned by Advocate General Jacobs about 12 years previously. So quality guarantee, advertising, communication, investment functions. They said it was for the National Court to decide whether these functions, functions were infringed, which is right, because their mandate is only to describe issues of law not to um, decide on the facts what should um, the outcome should be. But they strongly imply that the advertising function was infringed here. And indeed, the UK Court of Appeal followed that by saying this is not the sort of descriptive use that they were trying to prevent trademark owners stopping in Arsenal. So just to summarise again, following L'Oreal, we're starting to get to this stage where the Court of Justice is recognising that trademarks have these additional functions, that there are certain times when advertising can harm them, even if the origin function of the brand isn't compromised. But we're still 
left with a situation where the, brand, the functions are only being discussed in relation to 5.1a. And surely if 5.2, so section 10.3, the one that provides protection for marks with a reputation, surely it would be best to discuss functions such as communication, advertising, investment under there. There's also uncertainty over when these new functions were infringed because they were leaving it up to the national courts to decide. Now, these questions have been answered to a certain extent by cases based on Google AdWords. <clears throat> and this was the second key challenge that I spoke about at the beginning that pre was presented to courts because this is in, in the use that's made of trademarks in Google AdWords, the consumer might never see the trademark actually being used. So this moves us even further away from the perfume cases where the consumer could see the trademark and there might have been a, a way to pin it on harm to origin and consumer confusion. So to explain why brand owners were unhappy with the way that internet service providers were allowing their trademarks to be purchased as AdWords, I've just done put up a web page of a search that I did for Interflora. And you can see here that um, when you do a search on Google, the results are separated into two parts. So you have the sponsored results, and there are three at the top there, and then a load down the right-hand side. And these the way you get in these sponsored results is you bid for them, and the higher your, your bid price, the higher up in the list you go. And that bid price corresponds with how much you're willing to pay Google each time an internet user clicks through on your link. Now, underneath those um, three at the top, the natural results start. And unsurprisingly, given I've searched for Interflora, at the top of the natural results comes the Interflora website. The reason Interflora is not particularly happy is that companies, rival companies such as Marks & Spencer, who also offer flower delivery services, can purchase their registered trademark as an AdWord and therefore come quite high up on the page on Google results, higher than their natural search result. So that's the basis for the cases that were referred to the Court of Justice on AdWords. The first time the Court of Justice considered if this type of use was infringing was in Google France uh, last year. This was actually a referral of three different cases from the French courts. And in all three of those cases, the brand owners, the trademark owners, claimed that Google, the search engine, was liable for trademark infringement because they, had, uh, because they were offering these uh, trademarks as, for sale as keywords. One of these cases also claimed that the advertisers who were actually purchasing the trademarks as keywords was liable for trademark infringement. The court very quickly really said, no, Google isn't using these trademarks. It's providing the technical means for advertisers to use them instead. So really, we should be concentrating on the liability of the advertisers. Once again, it backed up the reasoning from Arsenal, from L'Oreal, by saying, if you've got double identity, uh, Article 51A infringement, you do have to harm one of the functions of the mark. And concluded, again, very quickly without m much analysis. In this case, it's the essential origin function, it's the advertising function that are relevant. Now, this might have been an ideal time for them to conclude that it was the advertising function that was being infringed, galvanised by the judgment in L'Oreal. But they didn't. They said, really, the only harm that uh, the advertisers, sorry, the trademark owner is suffering is the fact that they're having to pay a bit more to bid a bit higher price to move up the sponsored links. They'll still appear quite high up in the natural search results. The advertising function, that's not enough for it to be harmed. So they reverted back to the essential origin function and said, 
you have to ask if the normally informed and reasonably attentive internet user is confused. And at the end of this case, it looked like it was going to be quite hard for trademark proprietors to claim trademark infringement through the use of Google AdWords, because most internet users now are quite sophisticated. They're quite used to searching around for the right link when they do a Google search. This possibly changed by the second Google AdWords case I want to talk about, which is Interflora and Marks and & Spencers. And this was, the basis for this was the slide we looked at a couple of uh, slides ago, in that Interflora is unhappy that Marks & Spencer is purchasing its trademark as a keyword. This uh, judgment was delivered last month, and in it they confirmed, okay, Google France is right, the advertising function isn't infringed. But it made two really key steps forward, which is good news for brand owners. Firstly, they distinguished the investment function for the first time from the advertising function. And they said that if there is substantial interference with a trademark proprietor's use of the mark to acquire or preserve a reputation, then that could infringe the advertising function. And whilst the the sorry, that could infringe the investment function. And whilst the investment function overlaps with the advertising function, it's something quite different. And I think this quote is really interesting from the Court of Justice's judgment, because it says that when brand owners are trying to build up a reputation in their trademarks, they don't just use advertising, they use various other commercial techniques. So it's possible that if you have a substantial interference with those various other commercial techniques, whatever that might be, then that could be trademark infringement. Also, this case was good because it clarified that the functions don't just apply to Article 5.2, like I suggested might be logical a few slides ago. They apply to Article 5.1a as well, Section 10.1. And that's the one that provides almost absolute protection. So it's really great news for brand owners. So having galloped through 20 years of trademark history at a pace, where does that leave us? Well, the Court of Justice is clearly recognising that modern marks signify so much more than just origin to consumers. They have a reputation and this should be protected. And this is great news for brand owners. Their functional approach and their recognition of the investment, communication, advertising function also offers the Court of Justice a degree of flexibility in how they can deal with the new uses of trademarks that new technology is presenting. Now with this flexibility comes a certain lack of predictability for, grand, for brand owners and that we, we can never provide you with a detailed list of every instance of use that you will be able to prevent. However, there's no doubt that Courts of Justice are starting to interpret trademark legislation in a way that creates some very powerful tools for brand owners, particularly in the online environment. And that's where I've got to I'll hand over to Callum at that point. Thank you very much, Matt and Alison. It's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's great uh, to see perfectly encapsulated um, the law chasing the developments that are going on in industries um, and being still some way behind. Uh, as I mentioned, we will be hearing from Susie later on with some more uh, practical solutions provided by the law in terms of protecting brands online but we will break now let you guys have a coffee and we're conscious that too much legal content back to back can result in brain overload so to help us get through um, the last session we'll stop now and come back if we come back at five past um, then we'll hear from Susie and we'll close with some questions at that stage. Thanks for your attention so far. Firstly, thank you very much for coming back after the coffee break. I was told that no one ever comes back, so I'm pleased that after all you fall back in for more legal content. We've already heard today from Matt and Alison that you know, there's been a massive shift obviously in advertising strategies and that the law is doing its best to keep up, um, chasing along behind. Um, and it just shows this interesting development that's happening and a sort of joining of meeting of minds, we like to think, between the marketing and brand development um, 
individuals and also the lawyers can also be involved too. They don't have to be completely separate. And so for trademark law, this has been um, reflected in the changes and the recognition of additional functions that trademarks can represent, in particular, increasing acceptance of the advertising function. And what I'm going to talk about today is three other areas which are relevant to how you protect or control your brand online. And there are three topics that don't really fit together, so apologies. Um, but firstly, is really a practical point, and this is about the contracts that govern uh, the social media platforms that you use, and uh, whether you've read any of them, um, and some of the key terms and how they might interact with how you use the products. The second topic is looking um, at copyright law, and in particular how it deals with parody. And we've already seen today um, many examples of parody, and I think it's clear to everyone that it's a very important area um, for IP and for brands. And my third topic is looking at an opportunity for action, an option for action for trademark um, and brands. And that's really using the ISP liability route um, by which you uh, approach an internet service provider to get infringing content taken down. It's quite a powerful tool. So first up, social media platforms. They're so exciting, they're fantastic. Most of them are free. Um, we're all getting excited and spending lots of money with Matt um, to, to use them. And that's all very cool, but um, there's some important points to note, and that's that you know, these platforms, for their own protection, have imposed terms and conditions on you. And um, I'm not going to ask how many of you read the terms and conditions before you tick accept, but um, even even most of the lawyers don't either, so don't worry. Um, just as a side point, I mean, most of these platforms are free at the moment, and that is one of their benefits. Um, but naturally, these things are going to be monetized. It's inevitable. Um, just in the last month, Facebook has signed um, a multi-million dollar deal with Diageo um, to do with supplying uh, advanced technology to Diageo and supplying special data feeds. And this just shows a trend towards monetizing the platform. Um, and just by way of example, it's a historical example of another platform that's monetized. Um, it's definitely going to be the way it goes. So just to look at um, the contracts that are relevant here. I mean, as I've said, the, the, these terms and conditions exist. Um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, they've all got them. And one of the points to note is these platforms developed initially for use for personal use, really. They weren't really designed for commercial use. Um, more and more they are used by commercial entities in terms of being imposed to govern how those are used. And there are three major areas that might impact on how a brand uses its social media platform. One of those is pretty basic. It's access. It's do you know that that site will be up tomorrow? Um, do you know that your site will remain up or not? Uh, another point is about the use of data on the site. So user activity, comments, etc. That's, that's going on. Even um, information about behaviour on the site. Do you have access to that? Do you control it? What can you do with it? And another point is also about the use of content. So photographs, etc. uploaded to your brand's page. Um, Presumably, you probably want to use them, but do you know whether you're allowed to? I've just got three examples here from Facebook's terms and conditions. Again, I'm not targeting Facebook in particular. It's just an easy one to use as an example. Um, the same applies through all the platforms. Um, and these are just three terms that are quite important. And the first one, it just shows you that they can remove content if they believe it violates the terms and conditions. Um, that's a totally subjective test. If we were negotiating terms and conditions, we wouldn't accept that kind of wording. So it just shows ultimate power is with the provider. There's also a couple more up there about the use of data and the use of IP content, um, and in particular the granting of a license for them to use any of your content. So just the point to note is that there are these terms. They may affect how you use the sites. 
And this is really what you don't really want to happen. Um, you don't want to wake up and find that your brand's page has been taken down. And this has happened. Um, it happened to Cadbury in India. It had their Facebook um, page taken down for violation of the promotions terms. Um, and the promotions terms are actually fairly complicated for Facebook. Matt knows all about them, I think. <laughs> um, and it's just the point that, you know, this is happening. Brands are finding their pages taken down. It's worth taking the time to not just ask the intern to look after the site, but perhaps um, someone who, who's going to spend a bit more time understanding it as well. So just a few tips for you, really. Um, these reflect the comments I made earlier. Um, think about access. Think about data. Think about um, IP content that you're putting up there. Try and um, introduce some alternative ways of managing those processes. So if um, the terms and conditions restrict your use of IP content, so photos put up by your users, think about whether there are any other ways to, to ensure that that content flows to you and that you can use it. Um, think about migrating data, etc. while you've got the chance. And the last point on my slide is, is actually a sort of separate issue, but very important for intellectual property rights. And that's that you're creating an environment where people are talking about your brand. You're creating a marketplace of discussion, really. Um, and this is quite important because in the olden days, um, my, my first job, for example, as an IP lawyer, was to go and stand outside a retail park with a lawnmower underneath a sheet and ask people if they were confused when I pulled the sheet off. <laughs> we don't need to do that anymore because um, we just go onto someone's Facebook page and look to see whether consumers are confused, whether they're talking about the brand. And um, I can assure you, we just take the screenshot, put it in the cease and desist letter, and it makes things a lot easier. So the lawyers are on there. They're looking for evidence. Uh, monitor those sites. Understand that those are actually important um, environments that could be used against you if you're not being careful about what's going on on there. <coughs> OK, so my se second topic that I want to talk about today is this point about parity. Um, and in particular copyright law. Um, I think we've already seen enough to understand that parity is incredibly important at the moment and it's only getting more important. And it's not just that social media encourages people to interact, to reproduce, to um, create their content. It's also that brands are understanding the power of parity as well. Um, and it's not, you know, it can be a competitive attack um, or an attack by Greenpeace, for example. And the thing about parity and why it's really interesting for IP is that to be effective, a parity has to take from the original. If it doesn't take anything of the original, you can't tell that it's a parity. So straight away, we're getting into the area of, area of use that um, IP lawyers get excited about. So I'm just going to use an example um, to show us a little bit more about parity. And this is another Greenpeace example and another VW example. Uh, there are others, I think, out there. but. <laughs> Um, and this was really relating to the V-Dub Star Wars ad. I'm not sure if everyone remembers it. It's got a little kid dressed as Darth Vader who um, can't really light up anything in his house, but when he runs outside, he lights up his dad's car with his superpowers. And it was a really popular ad. It was um, very amusing. Um, and Lucasfilm naturally licensed the Star Wars rights to V-Dub to produce the ad. And so what Greenpeace did is they produced their version and I won't show you the video, though it's very funny. Um, and it's got a little Darth Vader trying to light up the V-dub. Um, and then Luke Skywalker and his friends turning up. And then you look up to the sky, and there's the Death Star emblazoned with the V-dub logo. And the message at the end is, V-dub's gone to the dark side. They're opposing uh, emissions targets. 
um, pretty powerful stuff, pretty damaging, um, and it's an extremely uh, concerted attack. There's a whole website still up. Interestingly, this was an attack or a misuse of two brands, um, and originally when it was taken down, it was because of Lucasfilm objection, not because of beta. So what does this show us? This shows the use of the original, clearly. Um, and so naturally, as a brand owner, not necessarily as a consumer, as a brand owner, you'll be thinking, what can I do about it? Um, can I object? And this is where there is some positive news for brand owners in the UK in particular. Um, and this is in relation to copyright law. As I've said, to create a parody, you often do take some of the original. And that's why copyright law is particularly relevant. Now, in the case of the UK law, copyright approaches the question of parody in the same way as any other work. It looks to whether there's been a substantial part of the original, um, whether it's been taken. Um, and then if, the, if it has been, then a finding of infringement is likely. In particular, there is no specific defence of parody. Um, there are other defences to copyright infringement, such as fair use and comment that journalists would rely upon. But parody is not a defence under UK law. Um, so this is quite good news for brand owners at the moment. And on another point, trademarks can also help brand owners to object to parodies. We've heard a lot about the killer example, but last week there was a further um, interesting development in this area, which is Lady Gaga obtaining an injunction against a computer game manufacturer who wanted to use uh, Lady Goo Goo character on YouTube. And this judgment hasn't been released yet, but the injunction was granted on the basis of trademark infringement. I think what this shows is that the court, when they recognise a commercial objective to the parody, um, a commercial interest, then they will look to protect the functions of the trademark. They don't really like to see the unfair advantage being taken. So that's interesting and a good news, good news for brand owners, because it shows a trend towards protecting against parody. However, <laughs> some bad news. Um, it does seem that we're on a road to reform here, because I think it's fair to say in the perception of the public, parody is seen as quite an amusing um, entertaining thing. It's not necessarily seen as an infringement by the general public in the same way that, say, a direct copying um, and direct exploiting would be seen. And there is a road to reform. There's a, been a report on IP published this year which recommends a parody defence be adopted. Um, the UK is also a bit out of step with other countries that do have this, such as in the US, um, where it's very much more common. And so just some tips here to think about when looking at parody. I think what's really interesting about parody is that it brings together this concept of reputation management and IP law. And I don't want to do myself out of a job, but sometimes the direct legal approach is not necessarily the best one. And we've already heard about the result um, which Nestle suffered by taking quite a strong traditional stance on its rights. Um, in that case, it backfires. So I think parody requires um, a really cohesive approach. It requires discussions between the business and legal about what the best steps are to take. It's not just firing off a letter as soon as the lawyers get hold of it. And I think the other point to make is that parity should become part of everyone's IPR enforcement strategy. Um, it's not just the traditional copyright infringement, trademark infringement you should be worrying about. You should be looking for these new uses of your brand, thinking about how they affect it, and asking the questions about what you can do um, if you want to stop it. The last point being, um, just illustrated by the image on the screen, sometimes there's a message for you in the parody. Sometimes perhaps listening to the message and responding is 
a better course of action and taking action against the creator. Okay, on to another topic now, um, which is ISP liability. This is internet service providers' liability for infringing content online. This is a really important um, avenue for action for brand owners because so much content is put up online, but very inconveniently, most of the time it doesn't have a name and address, an email address, postal address down the bottom for you to easily go after the person who's posted it. Um, the internet has just made these types of things so easily um, transferable, easily available to track. So what the law has done is it provides an avenue for brand owners, for rights holders, to make a complaint to the internet service provider who's hosting or providing a facility um, to complain about the content online. And in certain cases, they will have some liability for that content. And what the law says is they will have no liability unless they know about it. Um, so what do we do? We put them on notice, um, send them a letter saying, the site that you're operating, it contains um, counterfeit goods, it contains copyright works, these are my copyright works, you must take down um, the site. And this is a really effective tool. It's certainly sort of the first port of call often for online infringement. And what's happened this year is the situation's got even more interesting and better for brand owners. Um, and that's because of a decision which is known, really referred to as Newsbin 2. And what this decision was about, um, it, Newsbin 2 was a sort of online site, I don't know if you know about it. Um, it's a site which really provides um, infringing copyright works for download. So I think there are you know, tens of thousands of movies on there. 97% um, of which are covered by copyright. And it provides the facility for users who subscribe for a dollar a month to download these videos and watch them. So it's quite an extreme example um, on quite a grand scale of infringement. And what happened here is the rights owners um, didn't go after Newsbin 2, the operators, because they couldn't find them. But they went straight to BT, the internet service provider. And they said to the court, we want you to grant an injunction obliging BT to use special software to stop its users accessing the site. And this was the first time anyone had sought this type of injunction. And it's really an important change because internet service providers have always resisted this concept of censorship um, and naturally resisted the extra obligation imposed on them. And in this case, the court said, yes, um, this situation is so extreme, we will grant that injunction. So, Obviously, not all facts will fall neatly into this bucket and that this opportunity won't be available for everyone. But it does show an interesting trend um, towards additional protection, additional avenues of access and action for brand owners. So just a few tips there on ISP liability. I think you've probably got the picture that it's really about putting them on notice as soon as possible, um, particularizing why the material is infringing, why it should be taken down. And there's just also a side point here, which is something that um, is not always thought about, and that's to recognize that whilst it's great the original content has been taken down, by the time it's been online for a certain period, it's likely there's cached versions online as well. And taking down the original will not necessarily remove those versions. So it can be a bit frustrating. You print a letter that's been taken down, that your client's still searching, that's still coming up. Um, so just a tip is, at the same time as asking for takedown, request that they file a URL removal um, request with Google. Very straightforward thing to do, um, and it hopefully it will help to ensure the material's taken down effectively. Just as a side point as well, you do also have the option of obtaining or uh, applying for a court order requiring an ISP to disclose um, details of the individual who posted 
portrait of the user. This is not a cheap process, but in certain circumstances, it's a good avenue of attack. So, where have we got to today? Um, I think it's clear to everyone, if it wasn't already before you arrived, that the brand experience is changing, um, the way we engage with brands is changing, the technology is exciting and only moving into a new direction. And I think it's all too common to hear people sort of complaining or sighing about the law being completely out of touch and how we can't help and the internet, the wild west, etc. Um, but I think there's a more positive message to come out of today, and that's that there are avenues for control and protection of your brand. Um, the lawyers can be involved and it can be a positive experience. So let's just look forward to the future together. Thank you very much, Susie. It's, it's nice to know that the lawyers are invited to the future, um, and it's not just about everybody else. Um, we have got a couple of minutes left. Um, if anyone has any questions, uh, our panel would be delighted to take them. I'll look for a hands up, and I'm not sure if we have a second mic, so perhaps you'll be shouting. Sorry about that. Hi. Lucas licensed right. the Volkswagen and that had. I mean, I haven't seen the, I haven't <coughs> the license itself, but um, Lucasfilm has a massive suite of IP rights, so it's not just the original copyright um, in the films, they'll have trademarks galore and all sorts of um, different areas covering the names of the characters, probably also registrations for the design, like the images of the characters, etc. So the thing about um, well-established brands like Lucasfilm or like the Star Wars genre um, is that the IP owner has attached rights to every different aspect of it. Um, so in that case, they will license a number of those. In that case, if they hadn't licensed any rights, then the cause of action would probably be passing off in the first instance. Um, Although they do also use probably trademark terms like dark side and um, you know, different um, words within the video. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. There's clearly a, a balance to be struck between what you just rise in the fact that Mark was talking about um, and actually applying these rights to protect your brand. Is it just a value judgment in each case as to how you decide to speak? Sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry I, we, we're, I think we're talking about a tipping point between um, doing nothing and enforcing your legal rights and, you know, is it case-by-case case judgment or, you know, can you get a feel for what's more detrimental to a brand when you should be thinking about taking legal action? I, I think it, it comes back to this point that there are two sides to the question. So there's the brand management question for the, the marketing people who really understand the value of the brand and the reputational points. And then there's the lawyer's answer. So it is about, on a case-by-case -case basis, thinking, what are the consequences for us? Is this going to blow up? Um, how will this look? And, and I also think, frustrated by the, um, the Facebook update that said, don't post um, your Facebook profile about um, KitKat image. I mean, that was trying to use a tiny part of IP law to deal with a much bigger problem that probably should have been dealt with in a wider context. So I think it's about taking legal action when it's appropriate, but understanding the context in which you're taking it. There's a little bit of um, when do you shut the stable doors in that <coughs> point? You know, it's kind of if the horse is gone. Uh, if I can turn the question around slightly, I've used my position. Um, <laughs> at, for Matt, um, how, how much do you look at the horse 
before you put it in the yeah. stable as, as the creative guys. You sort of do you, do you listen to the legal team, ignore them completely, and, and fill the stable with horses. Uh, it's. I, I think there's a. Um, I, I was thinking about the Nestle example, um, and, and this probably plays into it nicely. Uh, there are kind of two answers. One is that. Um, if you are a responsible company, you listen to both your advertising agency and your lawyers, and then you make a decision. Um, and you listen to your, in that case, your PR agency as well. Uh, you really need to take advice from lots of different places, and then somehow you synthesize that into what you decide you're going to do, and you make your agencies, and I'm including your lawyers as your agency here, uh, work in concert. That very rarely happens. And that doesn't happen because there are... Yeah, a lot of different characters uh, yeah, in, in agencies. Uh, we tend to want to share everything. We are paid to tell everyone everything, and lawyers do tend to be paid to tell everyone nothing. Um, uh, and it's, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a conflict. Um, uh, but in, in the Nestle case, I think this wasn't an ambush by Greenpeace. Greenpeace had been in touch with them. Greenpeace had talked to them about this. Um, I'm not massively on the side of Greenpeace. I, I, I admire them as uh, marketers and as communicators. Um, I think they do tend to simplify issues a little bit. But they um, had been in touch. Nestle knew this was coming. And they had got back with some half-hearted messages to them. And then this forced them to change in a way that they didn't manage. They couldn't manage it. So actually, they were forced to make a business decision that they hadn't made themselves. Um, and I think that, you know, if companies acted in a joined-up way and um, the sort of legal team inside the business talked to the marketing team inside the business, that would help their agencies to work together better too. And, and if there were 28 hours in the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. Read that, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we probably have time for one more question. Uh, Let's ask a very general question to the panel. You know, in the light of all this social networking, do you think trademark? protection in its current form can ultimately survive I mean, in the same way that political monopolies were undermined in the Middle East. Surely trademark monopolies are going to be undermined in their present form. It's inevitable, isn't it? So interested your views on that. This is why I think the functional approach that the Court of Justice is taking is, is so useful because they have fallen into a trap in the past of trying to preempt future uses in the legislation. And they have trapped themselves, but they are finally finding a way out. And I think the functions are something to be embraced by brand owners because they do allow flexibility for future unforeseen uses of trademarks. So I think there is definitely mileage still in trademark law. I very much hope so. <laughs> and yeah, I, th I think it's a very, a very positive thing to step forward. What are your views on this? <laughs> do you have any strong views? Uh, I don't. The question. Uh, I think you know. Matt, I'm interested in Matt's view because I'd imagine. You know, I, I can sort of give you a sl some slightly peripheral information which will help confuse the issue more. Um, <laughs> when you run a community online, you, tr you try and get these things to spread. Um, what you find very quickly is that other small businesses hijack your campaign in order to make a point for themselves. Now you get some benefit because they're spreading it to their customer base and they're trying, yeah, they, they spread the message a little bit, but they're also clearly contravening a, a, an awful lot of what's intended by trademark law. And yet they've got the biggest audience 
and they are the keenest. I mean, even if it's some, you know, the number of times we've got, like, uh, we're doing a campaign for Schwartz spices at the moment, and almost every cooking blog in the, in the country has hopped onto this. Now, normally, we would try and get it out to the cooking, cooking blogs and get them to spread it, but in this case, they're choosing to use our stuff to promote that. It's, and how do I, you know, how do I, no, they're definitely in contravention. Uh, it's not members of the public, it's members of the public in their sort of business lives. It's hard, you know, these small, you know, there are more small businesses, the, the web encourages more small businesses. They find it hard to think of themselves as small businesses rather than as, you know, mother of two trying to make a bit of cash on the side. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. Tread the, yeah, it, there are a whole series of changes coming, that's only one of them. Thank you all very much for your attention this morning. Um, thank you very much to Susie, Alison, and to Matt. Um, you have everyone's contact details on the screen. Um, we're around for a few moments if you want to ask the question that you didn't want to ask in public. Um, do feel free to come and uh, come and address uh, your issues with any of us. Um, and all that remains, I think, is for me to ask you to join me in thanking our panel very much.